Hey, welcome back to season two of The Protectors. Excellent guest today, a uh, longtime fan, and Brian was the first person that ever got me on Fox News back in the day. Uh, huge supporter, absolutely huge supporter of the military community and our law enforcement community and our emergency responders, i.e. the Protectors community. Brian, welcome to the Protectors. Thanks for having me on, Jason. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. You are an absolute professional when it comes to this stuff. So I feel like I'm in awe here. I'm like, this is Brian Kilmeade, the best interviewer I've ever had. But hey, I got to give you the kudos where I can. <laughs> but Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers is now coming out in paperback. Excellent book. Um, I have my copy somewhere around here. I, I think I moved it. I was reading a little bit more of it last night prepping. What drew you to Sam Houston? Well, I'm number one, you know, I had a chance to do George Washington Spiring, which I found fascinating. That one out. I tried to do uh, Thomas Jefferson, the Tripoli Pirates, our first war on terror with Jefferson in charge. Yeah. I thought that would work. And then Andrew Jackson, Middle Club, New Orleans, always been fascinated with the Battle of New Orleans and the War of 1812, how close we came to total annihilation and nobody ever talks about it. And then through the Andrew Jackson book, you see Sam Houston all over it. And I thought, mm -hmm. what, how do I move through time and do another story? They could kind of link one to the other. That's why I opened up with the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, and that's 21-year-old Sam Houston fighting underneath Andrew Jackson at 41, suffering from dysentery, and finish off the Creek Indians in order to line up at the ultimate battle in the Battle of New Orleans. But Sam Houston so banged up, he barely survives, was supposed to die because he was fearless in battle. He was getting shot, got an arrow in the thigh, got shot in the shoulder. Both, in, both wounds, by the way, would never heal the rest of his life thoroughly. I'm sure they were all infected. But, you know, he would learn two things. He watched Washington burn to the ground afterwards. So he saw how fragile the country could be. And he saw the carnage. And then he realized how uh, courage is great, but it's got to be calculated. Because he barely got a chance to fight because he was so banged up and got shot up. He never thought he was ever going to get hit. So he uses those two things throughout his life. I still thought that would be a pretty good story, which would culminate the right guy at the right time to lead the right group of people against the right army. And that would be yeah. Sam Houston, the Texas Revolution. You know what I like about your books too? And I tell everybody about books. I'm like, you can go on YouTube and you can get a five minute spurt about something in a history. You can go on TV, you can watch a show, it lasts for two hours. But when you read a book, you get the details and it, it resonates with you and you always have it. It's a historical chronicle. Books need to be written, books need to be read, and we need to document our history. You have a, a diverse background in media, um, sports and everything else. What draws you to history? I just think, especially American history, I've always been patriotic, but I want to find out detail. The other thing that struck me was the President Obama was asked, are you an exceptional nation? And everybody always said yes. And everyone's like, well, yeah, I'm, we're exceptional. You know, we think we're exceptional, but every nation thinks they're exceptional. And the average person had no answer. Like, why are you exceptional? Well, yeah. because. Well, why, well, the way we started. Well, what does that mean? Everyone has to start somewhere. We're a democracy. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of democracies. So I thought, why don't I begin to chronicle all the ways in which America yeah. is exceptional, make it easier for people to answer that question. Now, Brian, you are such a busy guy. I feel like you have 10,000 jobs and I'm interested to know how you're able to juggle all of that with family, with, with the different things that you do. And then also with writing a book, because I'm sure at the end of the day, when you get home, the last thing that you want to do is, you know, pop open a laptop and, and get to it. So why is it so important for you to also do this as well? Well, thank you. Uh, but basically I feel like when, if I have free time, I like to work, do stuff productive. And if I was handier, maybe I'd go in the, in the 
and, and had a big garage, maybe I'd make, uh, make furniture. But for me, I have very few skills. And the only thing I have is like an endless curiosity. And I seem to understand history pretty well. It always intrigued me. And I love the fact that it's here. So if I actually was doing something on Washington, I could actually find his documents in Mount Vernon. Mm-hmm. If I'm doing something with Jefferson, I could go to Boston and see the ships that he sent out that Stephen Decatur sailed. If I could do some with Andrew Jackson, I could spend days in a battlefield. And then I could talk to people at the Hermitage where he grew up. And then with Sam Houston, you go out and you basically have people that are relatives of Sam Houston. You got the Alamo, uh, the Alamo, the historians there, Goliad, the Texas history, their, their archives. So I love the fact you can feel and touch it. And it seems very real because you can see their writings. You can see what they stood. You can see what they saw. I always found all that fascinating. Yeah, you know, the other version of your books, too, is the Young Reader Editions. Do you plan on doing a wrong Young Reader Edition for Sam Houston? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's going to come out, I think, probably a year or two. But you got Thomas Jefferson, the Tripoli Pirates, for the kids. Yeah. Uh, not that young, fourth to eighth grade. Mm-hmm. And then you have, uh, you have George Washington's Secret Six, George Washington's Spies, they renamed it. And you got pictures and maps. It's not an insult to the kids. No. But if you really want to get a sense of the story, they did a great job. I deserve no uh, credit or discredit for it. They, they were the experts. I tell you, I love that when the, when they turn like historical books into kids books, my kids are, you know, fifth going in seventh and they need the history. They're not getting the, the in-depth history of what we learned when we were kids. Um, we need this stuff and we need it now. Uh, I tend to stay away from politics with my show, but history repeats itself. We need to really, have historical documents like this. That's why I like that, especially that you wrote about George Washington, absolute favorite president. His spy networks were, we still use the same techniques to this day. Yeah, you got invisible ink, you have encryption, you have their own key uh, where everyone's got their own handle with your 355 or I think mm-hmm. uh, Washington was 711. 355 was the woman in the ring. And we never found out her identity, but in the paperback, I give you five to seven. I forgot which one it was. Uh, five to seven different people it could be uh, working. You know, we think it was a single mom, actually, who was working with the prisoners in Manhattan. I was able to get a lot of information that way. And, you know, so you had a lot of, a lot of things. They had dead drops. Mm-hmm. So if, uh, Jason, you and I were going to set something up, you would never meet me. You leave my stuff in one place, maybe in a cylinder in a farm. And this way, if you, if they got you, they got you. They didn't get me too. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, and the cover story it sounds basic, but they had to have deep cover yeah. stories because if the British kept you, if they capture you, you die. And the best example of that is one we started with, and that's Nathan Hale. He yeah. gets caught in Huntington, Long Island. He gets printed sixty miles with a matter of days, no trial. They hung him at sixty-six and third, I think. And there's stores there now. There's no plaque. So they hung him in Manhattan. And they want everyone to see because they want to intimidate the Americans just to give this whole idea of a uh, freedom up. Unbelievable. Brian, I have a question about uh, being conservative in the public eye because a lot of veterans will come out of service and some will decide to go into news, entertainment, reporting, media, um, you know, TV and film. What advice do you have for people trying to navigate that in a, you know, Hollywood especially is very liberal, but a lot of the news sources are liberal as well. So what advice do you have for people who are trying to navigate that space while either identifying as conservative or being labeled as conservative? Because many veterans are labeled as conservative, whether or not we are or not. 
You know, I don't know uh, these directors and producers. Thankfully, I, I can't act. So I would never have to make my way with them. And I'm not sure it should even come up because if they want you to act, it's how you handle yourself, your experience, your ability to memorize lines and perform. And if someone was to bring that up to me, I would say, why does, why does that matter? You know, I, I would, and I would pick my spots to be active. And I don't think there's anything, there's nothing less courageous than keep it to yourself. I mean, you have an, you have an obligation to be successful in your career. If your career was politics, go ahead. You know, if Jason, you want to come out and you, you say to yourself, okay, I'm a conservative. I want to be a conservative law enforcement guy that says we have to have a strong border. Fine. Mm-hmm. But if you're, if you're trying to be an actor, why would that come up? I'll give you my law enforcement background to help you choreograph scenes. I'll tell you why I understand the character. But you got to be James Woods. James Woods is a great actor who made enough money and said money and Clint Eastwood. <laughs> but I didn't see them coming out in their 30s. No. You know, in their 40s. So I think you could be a little street smart and, and not give up your principles. It they were smart mean, about you know, it, Brian. They were smart. Uh, they waited. They were very yeah. smart and they waited. Yeah. Then <laughs> they get leverage. I, I always give Jen so much kudos. Um, she's acting in a lot of great things, has her own TV series. Uh, just the veterans making it in, in Hollywood is so tough. Brian, one thing I, I did want to ask you about is in your bio, you mentioned stand-up comedy. Are you still into comedy and, and, and what's up with that? Yeah, you can't, you can't do a morning show and do that because, you know, the, the early yeah. show was 8 o'clock. <laughs> that's what I was doing because, you know, it's tough getting a radio and TV job, but they can't deny you to get on stage at the smallest or biggest venue. There's places to get up and it's also a little blue collarish. You have to yeah. have a sense of humor, be a decent writer, but most of all, you've got to have the gumption to go. And Jen, you probably know this. It's like, yeah, it's, you even forgot who was funny in the beginning. Because it becomes very blue collar. I have a good sense of humor. Fine. Are you willing to go up five to seven times a week, maybe more, and hone that, uh, hone that act until you're great? And that's discipline. That's what I liked about it. You didn't have to wait for the call to be on a radio mm-hmm. show. You didn't have to wait for Fox to like your tape. No one would stop you from going to the stage. So I had to stop doing that. I moved back. Uh, I went to New York, started. And actually, Chris Mazzilli, who runs the number one Gotham comic comedy in the comedy club in manhattan now runs it but i started with him at his club he owned the new york comedy club at the time still friendly with him soccer player and then i went out to los angeles did it for a while but at the same time i was doing tv and radio but making very little money but only i was the only thing i was ever doing is working and then when i came back i did it for a while and then the fox thing came up after three years when i was back in new york and they said you know you're gonna have to be in it you have to be up at 2 30 you got to be in at 4.30, you know, mm-hmm. 4 o'clock. You got to be on at 6. There's no way you could do that. Because uh, it's a grind. It's not an appearance. It's a grind. It yeah. Good. You got to study what you did wrong. You can't, it's, it's not like, you know, it's, it's not like something that you can go halfway in. And sports, you know, being a big sports fan, comedy, you know, the, the, the Brian Kilme persona on air is a lot different in my mind of the Brian Kilme persona or the real you. Hmm. I don't know. Pretty much the same. Just, I know. Yeah. Uh, very. Uh, there's a lot about people. Like when I first came out of the shadows, and I contacted you, you called me on July 4th. You are dedicated to bringing a true story to life. Um, that's why I think it's incredible that you're bringing books like, you know, Sam Houston's stories to life because you really want people to know the reality. And I, I'm really, I commend you for everything that you do. 
Oh, thanks. Yeah, I've got to try and have two years off the next one. Hopefully we could do this to do this again. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to following your writing just as well as following your your TV show. I mean, I love watching you on TV. I love being on your radio show. Uh, one thing um, is radio is such an incredible venue. You get more time to talk, more subjects to get onto. And uh, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show today. No, I appreciate you guys having me on. It was great meeting you, uh, uh, Jen. Great meeting you and great to see you, Jason. I'll talk to you again soon. Yeah, I'll see you soon, Brian. Thank All you, right. Brian.